Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. And here we are. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, life, and the Bible. And today we're coming to you live from right outside of Nashville, Tennessee, from the one and only Auntie Elisa Childers studio. In her basement. Just living the dream, (laughs) y'all. We are living the dream. Who would have thought? That's right. And uh, grateful for modern technology and Bob Bontrager, the official button pusher, still working behind the scenes. There he is all the way in Southern California. Hey, how you doing? We're doing good. All right. Good deal. Great show here. Yeah, glad to have you helping us. And again, we are live. This is kind of a crazy situation. I think this is our first show we've ever tried to do on the road. This is true. We have never done a show remotely. We always like go dark, cancel, pre-record. But there was the fateful time you tried to do it from a hotel room. That didn't work. That was from my friend's house. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that didn't work. But we are we are live. So. Yes, and we want to say a big thank you to Mike and Elisa Childers for all of the everything that they did to make this work. That's right. And letting us use their studio. Yeah. And uh, we want to invite everyone to join us in the chat box and interact with us, add your voice to the conversation tonight. And in fact, helping us moderate the discussion tonight across all the platforms is the one and only recent college graduate, debt-free Miss Emily Bontrager. Yes, there it is. (laughs) So go in the chat box. Tell us that you're watching. uh, Tell us on Facebook where you're watching from and uh, add some questions there as we interact uh, tonight and support the show. Yeah, support our show by clicking the like button, the share button, share it out with your friends. That helps us to beat the algorithms of YouTube and Facebook. Also, make sure that you are subscribed to our Facebook page. Sometimes um, Facebook or YouTube will unsubscribe you. I have been, oh, I hit my microphone. I have been unsubscribed from my own YouTube channel. And so- (laughs) Thank you, YouTube. Thank you. Make sure that you actually are subscribed to the channel. Yes. And uh, click on that share button. That's just a really practical way that you can help to uh, help the ministry. And it's a very easy way or maybe send this show to somebody in their DMs and just help uh, share the good word. Now, this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom and Family 210 Clothing. Yes, and our Family 210 clothing design tonight. We liked it so much. We're doing it again this week. It is the, I can't even see what it is. It's your design, yes. right? Yes, Created to Rain. Created to Rain. Yes, yes, yes. So we are created in the image of God, and we will co-rule and reign with him in the new creation. And uh, about 5 to $10 of every sale from the Family 210 clothing store goes directly to help our family. So we appreciate your support. So what have you been up to? 
And it's been a crazy, not just a week, but like 10 days, 12 days. We've been gone for 12 days. Um, We're finally flying home tomorrow. Yeah, we fly home tomorrow. And let's see, it started out with Wilberforce Weekend, where the Colson Center, started by Chuck Colson, invited me to speak. And I spoke on reconciling God's people. I did that. And let's see, it started on Thursday and went Thursday to Sunday morning. I spoke Saturday afternoon and really received just great feedback, connected with some awesome people, had great conversations. And then from there, we flew to Tennessee and I spoke at Teen Pact, which is a ministry to teens. It teaches them about government and politics within the United States. And so I spoke down at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee. But in between that, I failed to mention, sorry, that one of our faithful viewers and people we're in relationship with, Ms. Josie Harvey, had us come out to the school that she sends her kids to. Her husband's on the board of that school. And um, that's also in Texas. And so we spoke there and we did a training on um, critical race theory, but also on diversity as diversity, equity, and inclusion come into schools at a strong pace. And so we did that. And then we went to, to Cleveland, Tennessee, yeah. and then came up to the Auntie Elisa's house um, on, when did we get here? We feel like I we've been know. here a while. We, we driving you crazy yet? Tuesday. I okay. don't know. We got here Wednesday. No, I don't know. I spoke on Thursday. So we got here Thursday afternoon okay. and have fully moved in. <laughs> y'all, y'all, we damn people. I try we got the you. code to the garage. Don't Let play no games. <laughs> they gonna come home from vacation. I'm just gonna be posted up. Yep. <laughs> and so, this has been a good time to just relax and yeah, connect. It's been a, a couple days off, just re- resting mm-hmm. and um, having some time to just a little bit of downtime. That's yeah. been nice. So, if you don't follow Elisa Childers, you should follow Elisa Childers. You can do it on Facebook. You can do it on YouTube. You can go to our website. It's elisachilders.com. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's check in a little bit on YouTube. Lots of people checking in, go to the chat and check in. Uh, Candy is there and Andre from Charlottesville is checking in. Shauna from Long Beach. Whoop, whoop, the LBC. Oh, good. Minneapolis is checking in. Very good to see you, Jean, and Kathy from North San Diego, and Tracy from New Hampshire. Glad to see everyone jumping on there, and uh, feel free to join the conversation with us. So, all right. Are we ready to get into it here? Let's do it. So, a while back, um, a gentleman uh, reached out to, uh, to the ministry who's uh, an economics professor, mm-hmm. and he just kind of wrote in and said, Hey, I'd love to help out your ministry in any way I can. And so I had a little zoom call with him and talked about a number of issues and thought that it would be great to maybe talk about all of the conversation that's happening around the minimum wage laws. Cause now oh, that- I have a lot of questions about the minimum <laughs> wage law. I have a lot. Cause now that, that Biden's in office, there's a lot of conversation happening about the national minimum wage law and you know whether that's a good thing universal basic income Mm -hmm. was an issue in the last election so i thought you know let's let's get a christian economist on and start to talk about things from a biblical perspective because the bible has an awful lot to say about money 
Yes. <laughs> so I'm excited to. Culture has a lot to, to say about money too. They, they want my money. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming after your wallet. <laughs> All right. So we're going to uh, meet our friend Jeffrey Degner from Quarterstone University. Welcome, Jeffrey. Well, thank you for having me, Monique and Krista. It's really a privilege to join you. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us in the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in economics? And yeah, just give us a little background on you. Yeah, currently, as you mentioned, I teach at Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And my path into the field of economics is, frankly, quite a winding road. Uh, as an undergraduate, I, I really struggled to sort of find my way. And to be honest with you, I majored in music performance as a percussionist. I majored in biblical languages. And it took a while for somebody to straighten me out. And that involved meeting the right uh, young lady who eventually became my wife and uh, got a, on a little more focused track in terms of work. Now, uh, Really, this is kind of where the economics comes in for me because I began working in retail management and in getting to see the daily ins and outs of the entrepreneurial process, the realities of costs and the realities of hiring people. And sometimes um, in, in tough times, have to let people go. I became alerted to the importance of economics. Now, this time I actually... Uh, I had not finished my undergraduate, but I had piled up a few credits along the way in the social sciences. And so my wife and I, after a few heart-to-heart -heart conversations, just looked at each other and was like, hey, it's time to finish with a teaching degree for me and to pursue uh, really my giftings in the teaching field. Now, I, I finished with an undergrad then, after all that, um, finished with the undergrad in history and in economics from Western Michigan University up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It is a real place, so, uh, but graduated there in 05 and began teaching in the secondary schools and public schools and uh, coaching football and so on and so forth. But I was also teaching at a local community college and it's sort of interesting. Uh, for me, I hadn't achieved my master's in economics at that point yet, but because of my experience in the uh, retail management field, I was able to begin teaching uh, some night classes. So uh, after teaching for a couple of years, I went to a conference at Hillsdale College. That was in 2008. And it was there that I was first introduced to what is known as Austrian economics. And this follows uh, the, the line of thought of people who are just simply from Austria, uh, starting with Karl Menger in the late 1800s, followed by Ludwig von Mises, and then his, um, I would argue, his most eminent uh, follower, Murray Rothbard, who passed away in 1995. And so uh, I discovered that, that tradition, that school of thought in economics in 2008. And so even though I already had to an undergrad in economics, I felt like uh, it was time for a total re-education or educating myself in the field. And so that's brought me on an exciting journey to 
eventually finished my master's and now to be pursuing my PhD with one of the frankly leading Austrian economists in the world, a gentleman by the name of Guido Holzmann. And he actually teaches in a university in France called uh, the University of Angers. But given the technology that's available to us, I'm able to participate in that program. And the goal is to finish that PhD in economics in uh, a not, not too distant future. Now, I'm curious what you've noticed over the years in terms of your students. Um, according to, to statistics, younger people are being more sympathetic toward socialism. Um, I'm wondering if you've noticed this as well, and, and maybe you can give us kind of your one minute pitch of why you think people should learn more about economics. Yeah, I think for Christians specifically, we need to be truth tellers. Uh, for me, um, you know, I, I watched the Berlin Wall collapse and, and from my perspective, that was a true movement of God, but it was also an inevitable outcome of the impossibility of socialism. And so those, those things are both true when socialism collapsed. But of course, humankind, as we know, has a pretty, pretty short memory. And for those who were born well after the collapse of, um, of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, uh, this simply is not within young people's memory. And so you're right. There has been a noticeable uptick in the, I might say, interest in ideas of socialism. Uh, but, you know, Mises said, uh, Ludwig von Mises said that the philosophy, the, that economics is the philosophy about human life and action. And this is what we're doing every day. But when it comes to socialism, I, I've come more and more under the conviction uh, of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, that we need, to, we need to destroy arguments, every lofty argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And I believe that socialism falls in that category. And so as a, an instructor, an economics instructor at a Christian university, I've fell more and more under the conviction that I need to actively uh, confront this in my classrooms and in whatever conversations avail themselves. I, I remember one thing you said on the Zoom call that we had is that you have a lot of students that at a Christian university who come into your class and they are somewhat sympathetic to um, more socialistic policies and ways of looking at things. And so part of what you do actually as a Christian professor is begin to address that and helping them see um, whether or not that actually fits with their worldview as a Christian. So I'm looking forward to unpacking some of, some of those issues together. Now, um, I sent Bob, um, our engineer here, uh, an article that I saw recently because this is such a, a relevant conversation. The Biden administration uh, recently raised the minimum wage for all federal contract workers. Now, he did this via executive order, and I'm not a fan of executive orders, but that's a different different show. But um, it you. does raise the question about minimum wage laws in general, because there is an increasing push. This was a big campaign issue um, about a national implementing a national minimum wage law. And I think this is an important conversation because even in our travels, like we see wide disparities in how people are paid mm -hmm. from state to state. Uh, 
for doing the same jobs. So I always like to start with history because like you said, we're quick to forget sometimes. Maybe you can take us back to historically the start of minimum wage laws and how that came about. Yeah, so I would just stick with the, the history in the U.S. because there, uh, throughout the world you'll see minimum wage introduced, but wherever you see it introduced, it's actually intentionally introduced as a form of labor market discrimination. Uh, and in the United States, um, really the push for minimum wage laws actually started at the state level the state of Massachusetts in 1912 was the first to pass minimum wage laws. However, much like, uh, much like the Biden um, proposed policy, they actually selectively choose what markets or to whom the minimum wage will apply. And that was the case in Massachusetts in 1912. Uh, this is at the height of the progressive era. And the goal, one of the goals of progressives was to end child labor. And in Massachusetts in particular with good, you know, good old fashioned uh, Yankee um, kind of uh, New England attitude, they wanted women to be at home rather than in the labor force. And so what they did in Massachusetts was to deliberately apply minimum wage laws to young workers and to women because they knew that the effect would be to price them out of the labor force. And so eventually the Supreme Court, there were several other states that passed laws along the same lines. The Supreme Court in 1923 uh, eventually struck this down as unconstitutional uh, for, for the reasons that I've just stated there. They were clearly used as a tool of discrimination. Well, uh, Fast forward to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and this might sound familiar as well, his threats to pack the court, the Supreme Court, in uh, his first term uh, meant that in his second term, the Supreme Court backed off, and particularly on this issue of not a state minimum wage, but a federal minimum wage. And so... In, uh, in 1933, there was proposed what is known as the Davis-Bacon Act, and that is the act that was passed uh, eventually, and then in 1938 became the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, if you read some of the commentary by representatives and senators from the debate about the passage of a federal minimum wage, they are explicitly clear that they want to have a more, quote, fair labor market for white laborers. And they use all kinds of uh, derogatory terminology to describe African-American labor as well as new immigrant labor. And they knew that by passing the Davis-Bacon Act that this would block those employees from being able to compete against the, uh, the white workers. Very interesting. They did all of this under the guise of fairness. And this goes to uh, show us yet another example of where good intentions or at least stated intentions when it comes to economic policy rarely, if ever, meet the actual outcomes. I think I'm slow. I don't quite understand the connection. Maybe Monique can explain it or you can explain it, Jeffrey. 
of how a minimum wage law would exclude blacks or immigrant workers like how did that disadvantage them well i'll let him answer that question because okay. i'm not the economist but it does harken me back to something like in the slavery time okay so go ahead yeah yeah and so uh, what what we know in labor markets is that individual people do hiring right and they're subject to their own biases and prejudices and if those are known then the way to accentuate that or the way to exacerbate that is to raise the minimum wage, essentially uh, move the first rung of the ladder higher than some of those folks who are already marginalized, already pushed to the corners of society and make it more difficult for them to uh, break into the labor force. Now, we have statistical, ongoing statistical uh, proof that this is the case. If one were to take a look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics website and look at who it is that is actually unemployed in the United States, we'll see that the highest concentration of unemployment is among minority males in the ages from 16 to 24. Well, what do we know about these guys? We know that these young men are in a lower skilled category. These are the folks who would be entering the workforce at lower wages in uh, low-skilled positions. And those statistics continue to show up year after year after year. And so the effect of raising the minimum wage is to feed upon, exacerbate, or to um, enhance already perhaps um, internal biases and, uh, and so forth. So I hope that so are you, are you and, saying and, that, and this is all new information for me, so I'm just processing. So are you saying mm-hmm. that because of our, the, the hiring, let's say the hiring person, their own personal prejudices, if they think in their minds, well, if, if I have to pay, let's say the minimum, national minimum wage is $12 an hour, let's say that's the, the amount. Mm-hmm. If I have to pay this much because I'm prejudiced, I will tend to hire white people over black people um, if because I have to pay a certain amount per hour. Is that is that the argument? That that kind of goes along with um, the idea that there there are certain stigmas out there, certain um, ideas that, for example, if you come from a high school in, in my city in Grand Rapids that is predominantly uh, African-American and you think to yourself, well, that means that achievement is lower, uh, the students are not having as much instruction in school, Uh, the hiring manager then reasons to themselves, well, if I have to pay $15 an hour, then I probably want to hire one of these kids from a private school who I know doesn't have to rely on public transportation, so on and so forth. So that's what, uh, that's the sort of explanation on that. But uh, among economists, there's, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but he um, had a headline or a a statement in the Wall Street Journal the other day uh, that indicated that if there is this sort of increase in minimum wage, what we'll find is that the people who get that wage, who captured that wage in terms of the young workers are, are likely to be Uh, kids from already wealthy families who can be sure to get them a ride there on time, uh, who have the right connections, 
who already know the manager, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is the process that we, that we often see unfold in the, uh, in the labor market that is specific to low skilled labor. So then the, the minimum wage laws that are put in, in place that are supposed to be helping minorities actually work against minorities. That's precisely right. That's precisely right. And again, I refer to those Bureau of Labor Statistics um, uh, numbers and they're, they're readily available to see it. So I, the, the minimum wage laws in California is something that I've been thinking about a lot, especially as, you know, looking at hiring and, you know, what is the minimum that we must pay and, you know, wanting to definitely do more than the minimum and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I have heard many arguments for minimum wage laws. What do you think, like, do you think there's anything helpful about minimum wage laws? Can you give us like some best case scenarios or best arguments for minimum wage laws? Yeah, the best case scenario is that it actually doesn't create any unemployment. Now, uh, that occurs in markets because, you know, you think about the United States and you think about low-skilled workers. Well, there are thousands of labor markets. So the market that you're in, in uh, it's in Southern California? Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So what we see in places like Southern California or, or Manhattan or Miami or uh, places that have higher per capita wealth, the consumers are more than happy to go to uh, a Starbucks and pay quite a lot of money for their coffee, which then turns into revenue and then turns into, um, and turns into wages. Well, the folks who live outside of Grand Rapids aren't willing to pay so much for their coffee. <laughs> And revenues in the same sort of establishments are, are lower in more rural areas. And so one of the things I've done, uh, I like to do this little exercise, is when I drive around uh, the Grand Rapids area, is just to look at the hiring signs and often say, hey, we're hiring all shifts at this amount. Well, the farther you move away from the downtown Grand Rapids area more, to more rural areas, you see that number start to decline. And it's simply because these folks in outlying areas have lower incomes, which means lower revenues for local businesses. And then that small revenue means that you're, you're paying your workers less. Uh, but people age because the standard of living, and I should say the cost of living, is lower. And so the idea of a national minimum wage at, say, $15 an hour that covers all markets for low-skilled labor uh, at the same time, not too far from where I live. Uh, the local McDonald's is hiring at $11 an hour. Well, if they're forced to pay $15, there are just simply going to be fewer jobs available. Uh, and you might see more automation, things like this. And so it, it's not only a concern about who loses their job now, but what about the kid who's 13 years old or the kid who's 14 years old and about to uh, hopefully get into their first low-skilled wage job? 
they, they're, they're blocked from this opportunity to learn the kind of, uh, the kind of job skills, the work ethic, and, and all these things that, that we all picked up on when we got our first job, working small wages, right? Mm-hmm. And so this, this is another effect of, um, of that. Now, you know, to, to answer your question about what people say, uh, some will say that, look, it's, a, it's an act of compassion. Um, if that were the case, then why don't we just raise it to $100 an hour? I mean, that, that logic doesn't meet, it doesn't meet with reality because I'd be unemployed. <laughs> I don't know about you ladies, but um, at that rate, we would, we'd be unemployed because we don't provide that amount of, say, um, productivity for, for what we're doing. Um, you know, but some will I say that... As we travel the country, one thing I've noticed is that um, different regions of the country have different needs. They have different standards of living. And I think that's kind of what you're going Mm -hmm. for. And that a national minimum wage law kind of assumes that the whole country is homogenous and that there's the same incomes everywhere and the same standard of living everywhere where we live in Southern California, um, you know, you can go get a job at Panda Express for, you know, 14. 14 is the, the base. Yeah, it's the base, you know, to yeah. be a checker at Panda Express. But if you go to, we were in rural uh, Tennessee recently, and, you know, they had everywhere we went, there were signs up now hiring, but their wages were much lower mm-hmm. and people had lower incomes. And so for those employers, a national minimum wage would be somewhat catastrophic because it, it really assumes that everybody everywhere has the same income, the same types of businesses, and that, that would have a far reaching effect and it could actually injure you know, some economies. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the, that he brings, you bring forth a good idea or a good thought about like being compassionate and things like that. Like we want to make sure that everyone can afford to live, but it's like you, in Los Angeles, $15 an hour is no money. You know, you can't live on $15 an hour and have like a car and an apartment Rent and is, insurance, is, yeah. and, you know what I mean? So at that point, it's like, well, why not $100 an hour? Well, because that's not realistic. But you but, hear this phrase all the time mm-hmm. of like, we have to pay people a living wage. Well, but that's not a living wage. That yeah. That's not a realistic living wage in Southern California. Yeah. So then it, it leads me to the question of, well, then whose responsibility is it for someone to, to live? You know, like if... If $15 an hour would be uh, a universal basic income. Or universal minimum wage. Yeah, universal minimum wage. Do some people get money to thrive? Because in, you know, Wyoming, I can live on $10 an hour and have all my my needs met. But now the universal basic income is um, 15 or the universal minimum wage is 15. While the person in California can't survive on anything less than 23. I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm who arbitrates that? Who says that you, that this is enough for you? Yeah. You're exactly right. That's sort of this fallacy that uh, of this one size fits all federal policy. There are many, 
many labor markets and many low-skilled labor markets. But as for this idea that, uh, and, and you're right, uh, I lived in Southern California for a little while, and uh, my wife made at a point where things were getting tight. She said, you know, the views sure are beautiful, but they don't pay the bills. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's an expensive place to to live. So there is no one-size-fits-all policy that would um, that would work for both employers and the employees throughout the country. So, so this is um, uh, clearly a significant issue when you try to federal. Um, uh, one other comment I wanted to make was about who actually earns minimum wage at the federal level right now. Well over half of the current minimum wage owners, uh, excuse me, employees are people in their teens. Uh, then if you take the population that is 25 up until retirement, there's only 1% of those individuals who actually earn minimum wage. So you often heard it said, and it's true that, well, you know, who can raise a family on a minimum wage job? Well. The answer is nobody, but the follow-up is that no one is. Um, in fact, if, uh, if you're married, only one in 100 people who are married earn a minimum wage. Hmm. Uh, now think about that. Uh, if, you, if you have a spouse, that implies that there's a 99% chance that they have a job that earns above minimum wage. And so, uh, so these numbers um, really sort of, dismissed this, I'll call it a myth that there's, you know, there are these adults out there who are not able to take care of their kids because, oh gosh, they're stuck in a minimum wage job. Uh, that, that person is not in the minimum wage labor market. What do you think about those who say, well, you know, minimum wage laws should fall under the banner of like love for neighbor? And shouldn't Christians be for the idea of love your neighbor? Like, I should care that you eat. You know, I should care that you have a place to live. Yeah, well, I don't see in scripture where, for example, yeah, can you imagine the Good Samaritan parable changing a little bit? Maybe the Good Samaritan sees the person who's obviously down and out, needs help. Uh, but instead, the Good Samaritan uh, tries to flag down a Roman official to go track down the Levite who had more money and say, you know, and shake him down and say, all right, you need to be uh, providing for this individual. Christian charity is at the, the church level. And we don't go through this process. We are not told in the scriptures to go and appeal to the government, ask them to seize the wealth of um, perhaps store owners or, or small-time entrepreneurs and force them uh, to, to take care of others. This is a, a call for generosity that is upon each of us and, and our churches, um, but not to grab the government and tell, hey, this guy over here needs to take care of this guy's needs. That's not the process we see in either the Old or New Testament. I think one of the things that I've tried to teach my kids and I don't know if I did this right or not, but I, I tried to encourage them to look and differentiate between an entry-level job or what I used to call when they were young, a teenager job, 
you know, yes. to, and when they were small, even I would encourage them to think about like, what teenager job would you like to do someday to help them know that, you know, work was in their future. Um, as they were growing up, they worked in our family, small business from the time they were about 11 or 12. And they would put in uh, a, an adult's day work. It was hard physical labor that they did in, in our family business, but then they've gone on to get entry-level jobs. Uh, I have one daughter right now. She's earning um, about $15 an hour with tips as a busboy in a restaurant and, and busboy slash hostess. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's really her first kind of entry-level job, which is fine if you're 18, 17, 18 yes. years old. But I would be concerned about her if she stayed in the restaurant industry and I don't know what she's going to choose in her life but if she stayed in that industry and then she was still earning $15 when she was 23 or 35 so I think the idea is that as you yep. learn skills you're no longer an entry level skill anymore you would be able to be promoted and increase your value and and bring those skills to bear in your industry, make lateral moves and, and continue to get promotion. I think what's difficult is when people get trapped at the level of a low skill job and then they have kids and families and that's where you get the idea of kind of the working poor. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where things get a little bit more difficult. When, you know, you have a yeah, 35 so year old who's still stuck at the, at the entry level job. So, you know, this, um, this interaction between the employer and the employee, uh, I mean, you hit on some really wonderful things there. I, I went through this, uh, I'm going through a similar process with my oldest daughter. She's uh, making $14 an hour at a certain establishment and she feels pretty good. She's like, dad, I'm making bank. I'm like, well, that's great. But this is about earning, uh, learning skills. And how about being the owner of that place someday? Let, let's, make sure that we're going to acquire the kind of skill sets that do raise our wage. But you are right, Krista. Um, some folks do sort of get stuck. But again, statistically, we know we're, those folks are about one in a hundred uh, for minimum wage uh, laborers. Now, what I would say is when it comes to our, uh, I want to speak to the Christian entrepreneur here on this point. Um, we have uh, a number of places in both the Old and New Testament that reflect on and demonstrate what it's like to have a, a voluntary and a mutually understood contract. Uh, one example is in, in Deuteronomy. We have uh, Deuteronomy 25. We have this call for, let's say, a vineyard. Let's pay them by the end of the day. Well, the Bible is describing the timing of the payment, not the specific amount. And so what's being called for there is an understanding of what is required by both parties, an agreeable contract. Uh, and in Matthew chapter 20, there's sort of a, well, not sort of, there's an actual parallel to this passage, Matthew 21 through 16, where Jesus is describing uh, the describing God the Father in the parable of the vineyard owner and, uh, and the workers. And you know, first we see in that parable that God is consistent with his own law. He pays all the workers 
at the end of the day at the properly appointed time. But second, you see some workers who are not as happy with what they've gotten and they claim that the vineyard owner is uh, the owner of the property is unjust. And the owner replies in the place of God, the father saying, look, I am free to do with what already belongs to me. Are you envious of my generosity? That's the question he asks. And so um, that, that's a New Testament parallel as well. But, but I'm also concerned about, um, you know, as business owners, work through the, the hiring and the wage determination process. That for Christians, this ought to be an ongoing conversation between employers and employees. Uh, Paul in Romans 12 calls us to think of ourselves soberly to think of ourselves accurately. Well, that's true if you're an employer or an employee. And so giving people their just due as employees is, uh, I think, and hopefully should be, a distinctly Christian attitude and approach to the conversation of employment and wages. Um, you know, one of the one of the parables I, I spend the most time talking to my students about is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we see that there are uh, unequal expectations there because they're each given five, two, and one talents. But we also see that there's a follow-up conversation about the actual productivity that the person brought. And it is uh, sadly and unfortunately possible that you might have an unfaithful servant, as in Matthew 25, an unfaithful employee who's not getting the job done. So let's let's have a conversation about how we can get this better and not be 35 years of age making 725 an hour and how can we boost your productivity? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some great questions coming in on YouTube. Um, Candy, who lives in Canada, um, she's got a couple of questions. She says, minimum wage laws benefit large corporations, but price out small businesses yep. that have smaller profit margins. Um, so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Is that what you found to be true as well? Yes, Kenny, that's hundred percent on the money. Um, that is why you will see, um, sort of in the headlines, you will see uh, bank of America, uh, just this past week announced in a few years, they're going to have a quote unquote minimum wage of $25 an hour. Well, that, that sounds wonderful. Uh, but what does that do for, the competitiveness of your smaller local bank, you know, uh, and I'm going to name names here. I, I don't know if this is going to be a problem on YouTube, but your, you know, your McDonald's or your Home Depot or your Lowe's, uh, they have profits throughout the organization where they can subsidize one another. Okay, but your local hardware store, that that's not the same situation. It's not the same labor market. And that that's a hundred percent right. And you see this not just in like hardware, but think about the restaurant industry. Uh, restaurants uh, margins are very slim to begin with, and it's even more so the case among your local mama pop stores. And so what winds up happening is that some of those uh, large scale retailers, they have the ability to subsidize, let's say the profits from you know uh, a lows in um, Santa Barbara can go ahead and subsidize one out in Victorville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and then too, you know, when you get the, the bigger name stores, 
that have the higher margins, they hire more people, but they don't offer, you know, as many hours. It's like, yeah, so now I'm getting minimum wage, but I'm not getting as many hours. Even if I have more money, it's still not this huge increase that one would probably expect if they were working as many hours as, you know, they might get in a smaller store. Um, And then there's no benefit with that because, I'm not working the minimum amount of hours that would require me to receive benefits. Yeah, that, that's also correct, Monique. And, you know, in economist speak, we would say that with the rising price of labor, you have a lower quantity of labor demanded. Uh, and this is, I think, often the, the central problem around minimum wage discussions is that politicians or the general public forget that, that wages are determined by both supply by the laborers and the demand for it from uh, hiring agents and uh, human resources departments, right? Uh, so it is a two-way street and you're right. This leads to a wealth redistribution uh, among firms, among businesses, those that can handle the minimum wage, they actually push for it. They actually encourage Congress to move forward. Um, in, in the early 20th century, it's a little bit of a, a tangent, but um, a similar thing went on when it came to increased government regulation upon businesses in the name of safety, right? Safety of workers. We're going to add these regulations and they were pushed and encouraged by the large corporations. It's not because they were particularly generous or particularly um, compassionate towards their workers. They knew that from an economic standpoint, this is a way to impose a regulation that they know their smaller competition can't even hope to pay for. And so they go out of business. And so it's a similar uh, sort of process that we see here with minimum wage when we compare the large corporations versus your small local businesses. We have one commenter on YouTube. She says, my daughter used to work at a family owned pet store. After a year, her pay went up, but they lowered her hours. We're in Illinois and on the $15 an hour schedule already. And so that's, mm-hmm. you know, exactly the point that you're making is that it, you know, it, it, it can have that unintended consequence where a smaller family-owned business can't mm-hmm. compensate, um, whereas a big box retailer um, that has a national chain can kind of mm-hmm. even things out a little bit. Or, I mean, I even look at like a nonprofit situation, like a nonprofit like ours, you know, it's like I when you're put in a position of having to pay like a minimum wage, to, to someone, should I pay them the same, like the same salary that I would be getting paid or, you know, like, or do you perhaps not hire someone because you can't meet the minimum wage and then have all of the admin and the additional pressures just on you? It puts you in the a struggle very- struggle is real. This is very practical yeah, like, example. Y'all, Monique's I'm, earning minimum wage and she's trying well, to I'm hire- not, I'm, not, I'm not at, at minimum wage, exactly. <laughs> she's trying to put my stuff out there, y'all. Um, pretty close. But I mean, but that's a real conversation. Yeah. Like when her her 18 year old yeah. is making almost the same amount of money that I'm making and I've been working, you know, like I have a degree and I've been working in social service for, you know, so many years now, I guess, though, you could also say that the beauty of America is choice. And the reality is I could go and get a job in social service and make a lot more money than what I'm currently making. But the choice is mine. 
and you kind of see those free yeah. will to me, Jeffrey, what I see in scripture is the assumption of free will um, associations, free will contracts, mm. if you will. Yep. And yeah. that the, the labor, the vineyard, the parable of the, the vineyard owner and the laborers, those were all free will arrangements. And um, they negotiated that pay Absolutely. and they were willing to, to work for that amount. That is the assumption of scripture mm. that that's not the realm that God has appointed over the government. The government doesn't have sovereignty over economics or free will relationships when it comes to um, hiring people. So I don't know. Those yeah. are those are some thoughts I have. Those are hugely important points, Krista, because you know we can talk about how minimum wage law fails pragmatically, right? We can talk about these examples all day, no problem. But there is a moral issue at stake here. And, you know, the scripture over and over, uh, especially in the Proverbs, indicates that that altered weights and measures, false weights and measures are an abomination. They're an abomination to God. And uh, this is the fundamental moral reality. Uh, now, it's fraudulent and it's an abomination if, you know, you or I do this to one another in the marketplace. But what we have in the case of minimum wage is that the government actually enforces unequal weights and measures. Um, if often when we think about Micah chapter six, we think about that, that passage that talks about doing justice, but there's a context and Micah chapter six is talking about a series of economic crimes where God is, is um, lambasting Israel's and he says, uh, can I forget your use of unequal weights and measures? Can I forgive it? And that's a shocking statement. We think of God's forgiveness and mercy over all things. But the sin, the abomination of unequal weights and measures, whether it's done by market participants or imposed by the government, is uh, something that's deeply offensive to God. And how do we know this is an abomination? It's because it promises one thing for the poor, but it delivers the exact opposite. It's, it's, it's a complete falsehood. It's a complete inversion of reality. And yet uh, we have government officials throughout the ages who have pushed for this sort of thing. And in fact, in Micah chapter six, um, there's this uh, little statement there about the statutes of Omri, one of the wicked kings. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that one, you know, that he's enshrining into law market fraud, market unequal weights and measures. Uh, and so th that's the moral side of this. And uh, that's the one where I feel like my conversations with students at Cornerstone is becoming more and more enriched. It's not just that this, uh, when minimum wage, uh, again, you know, especially in markets like rural areas where um, people have, uh, there's a lower, what we call equilibrium wage. Uh, it's not just that those people are disaffected it's that it disproportionately harms the poor. It disproportionately harms um, the young who, you know, I think we've just described here with a, plenty of anecdotes how valuable young work is for all of us in learning work ethic and so on. 
I think uh, we're getting so many good comments. People are really enjoying the conversation. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, the idea of in Deuteronomy 24, which we mentioned earlier, is, you know, from God's perspective, the and that and Bob's got this if he wants to can get it up on the screen for us is it from God's perspective to take advantage of the hired worker, um, the low wage mm -hmm. worker in, in this case is uh, when you don't pay them, <laughs> you know, when mm -hmm. you don't pay them in a timely way and you're, you're basically engaging in a form of theft, you're stealing their yes. labor for your own benefit. Mm -hmm. And that would be a violation of one of the commandments. And, um, and from God's perspective, if we're going to talk about a justice issue, it's, it's, it's paying your people. Um, it says uh, before the sun goes down, knowing that they are counting on it. Otherwise that they may cry to the Lord against you and you would be guilty of the sin. And so the, the past, the passage sort of presumes that there's sort of this, this is the hand to mouth worker. This is the, the person who's really relying on the daily wages to provide for their family's basic necessities. And, you know, when we think about small businesses, when we think about even large businesses, the idea of paying the worker is, it does matter to God. Like that is a justice yeah. issue. And so we absolutely don't want to steal people's labor but I think mm -hmm. it's important for us to think biblically about this, you know, not from the standpoint necessarily of like, well, what's the smallest amount I can get away with paying my workers, mm -hmm. but looking at them as human beings. I think that if we're going to be Christian bosses, you know, to, the ideal is that we see our, our employees as human beings and maybe even knowing some of their needs and having compassion on that and looking at, you know, maybe even helping them with Christian charity, being able to provide for your own family. But, you know, we want to think Christianly about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it, it's sometimes a little bit tricky because our culture wants to send us messages of what compassion and justice look like. And we have to think carefully about it from God's point of view. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, the, great thing to draw out of that Deuteronomy 24 is to ask the question, why are they counting on it? And uh, I believe what we're being shown there is that they're counting on it because there's a known wage for a day laborer. There's a known agreement, much like you saw in the, in the Matthew 20 passage. Uh, in fact, um, in the book of James, James rebukes um, employers in the church because what, what the employers in the case of um, uh, the James is describing, the, they're employing poorer Christian brothers and sisters, but they're telling them, oh, well, I'll pay you tomorrow. Well, that's breaking the contract, a well-established and you know, widely understood contract. And, and maybe these wealthy people are thinking, ah, well, I'll pay tomorrow you know, we're brothers and sisters, you know, they can, they can wait, they'll be gracious or patient, you know, it's hard to know precisely the thought process. But you see over and over again, that timely payment on what is expected in a contract is, is absolutely paramount to Christian integrity. Um, and to follow up, you know, what does it mean 
for us as Christian employers to take care of uh, and to to work alongside our employees. I, I mentioned earlier, I think it is that ongoing um, sober as in accurate uh, description of what our work is looking like. You know, how are we really doing? Where can we truly improve? Uh, so that there can be growth and flourishing for the individual in terms of their skills, but also in terms of the financial benefit. So mm-hmm. it's really incumbent here on Christian employers to be having the conversation about growth in productivity and um, and and certainly to be generous when when needs arise. You know, I agree with both of you guys on that. And as someone who is soon to be like an official employer, um, it, I think that it's hard to have that conversation when the government in in a way is is stealing from what or what feels like stealing from the employer to say, I, you must take this money and use it this way. Um and maybe stealing isn't the most generous of words, but I think when when things like universal basic income or um, you know demanded minimum wage laws come into play, it's like we can't necessarily take all of these other things into consideration the way that we might want to because we it is a demand that you must pay this amount. And that in some regards to me is an overreach of government. It's an overreach of, of what I feel like scripture has, is, is calling me to do and what I would want to do as a Christian caring for my neighbor or caring for my brother or sister. There just seems like there's, there's such an overreach and, or an overstep of government that almost prohibits some, some, some of the duties that I feel like I would want to participate in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just to build on yeah. that. I, I think that, you know, the government, God has appointed the government to be over, you know, justice in terms of terrorizing with the wicked, you know, to, to punish the guilty, to protect the innocent. These are, this is the primary purpose of the government from God's point of view, but I in, enter into individual contractual relationships as a as a as an employer as someone who hires i think my responsibility as a manager in my current job is advocating uh for the development of those that i supervise i take that very seriously i spend a certain percentage of my time every week investing in my team helping them to become better workers providing mentoring guidance Uh, strategic conversations. And that's how I am sewing into hopefully giving them skills so they can continue to climb the ladder in their career, but also advocating with the powers above me for them to get raises and to, Mm -hmm. you know, as they are getting new skills. So I see that as part of my job as a Christian and being in those kind of contractual relationships with the people um, that I'm responsible for in that sense. I guess one of the things that I tend to say is that injustice in the name of justice is still unjust. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what it leads me to. It feels like the, the overreach is an injustice to the employer, but it's the goal is um, in some way to bring justice to the employee. But what we're missing is that that injustice is still unjust. You can't do injustice in the name of justice and expect it to be just. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and that's at the heart of God's condemnation of unequal weights and measures. One party believes, or maybe a third party believes that they are creating from their viewpoint, from their standpoint, a more just outcome. But, um, but this is, again, something that has the opposite of the intended effects. It does overreach. Uh, and uh, you both alluded to this, but Romans 13, um, you know, you know, we're talking about what we ought to be doing as, as Christians, bu- Christian business people with our employees. And God's given us clear direction uh, on how to behave in those, um, in those spheres. But God's also given clear direction on what governance to do. And it's a very limited sphere in the sense that it is to, uh, to punish evil and full stop. Like, that's it. Uh, it is not, God does not mandate that government exists to tell you know, Monique uh, how she ought to be paying uh, such a worker or any worker or all workers. Um, this is not a part of the um, biblical mandate for government. And so overreach, I think, is precisely the right word to describe uh, these sorts of interventions. Uh, and real quick, I know we're short on time, but um, actually in the Old Testament, you know, I don't know if you ever tried one of those um, read through the Bible in a year programs and you kind of got hung up. Like when I was younger, I get hung up in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's like, ah, these rules, uh, it's kind of boring. But once I understood uh, economics, I saw the richness of it. And in fact, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, when someone does commit fraud in the marketplace, there's a mechanism in the marketplace uh, for God's people to deal with it. And it's actually not call in the judges and punish this guy or this or that. It's simply to exclude them from, uh, don't, don't go to their, um, to their tent. Don't go to their, the place where they do business anymore. And uh, that is the, the quickest and easiest response to fraud or to unequal weights and measures in the marketplace. So the market is uh, given, I would argue, by God, a mechanism for, by which fraud is discovered and fraud is, I'll use an economics word, where it is disincentivized because of the threat of people pulling away and no longer, um, no longer go into those business owners who, who act in this way, whether it's uh, cheating on their prices or whether it's cheating on their wages, either way. Well, we're going to do some really quick questions here to... Uh wrap things up. Uh, one question from Candy is, is it, why, why $15 an hour? Like, wh- how did they arrive at that magical number of $15 an hour as a potential national minimum wage? Well, well, I can tell you, um, when you're doing PR marketing, you should come up with a catchy slogan. And I'm a Baptist and I love alliteration. So fight for 15 sounds pretty good. Um, you know, you can slap that on a bumper sticker. Uh, you know, why that number? Well, um, this gets into a bit of a debate about how economics is done. There's uh, mathematic economics where you have some, um, I don't know, mathematics whiz kids who say, well, you know, if we want to minimize the number of people who do want to do wind up unemployed and uh, this sort of thing, it's a guess is what I'm saying. It's a guess because that wage does not fly in rural Tennessee. That wage does not fly in rural Michigan uh, or even rural California for that matter mm-hmm. when it comes to low skilled laborers. So it's, um, it, it's, 
think because it's higher than what it is now, but it's it's somewhat arbitrary. I wonder if it will actually help the chronically unemployed. So I think in a number of arenas, you get the chronic. So you get um, like the chronically homeless, those who continuously have patterns of homelessness, um, chronically incarcerated, those who continuously have patterns of incarceration, chronically unemployed, those who have continuous patterns of unemployment. I wonder if $15 an hour is an incentive enough to help someone remain employed or if it's not and it's just an arbitrary number and it's not going to matter anyway you're going to find will we have the potential of finding that the same people who are unemployed are going to be the same people who are always unemployed because of their either lack of commitment lack of you know productivity on the job whatever mm-hmm. Yeah, so that question about the chronically unemployed, when we do take a look at who is chronically unemployed, they tend literally to be the same people, not not the same demographic, not the same um, uh, whatever gender, race, background, the literal same people. And so, so here's a question where we as the church can start to start to zero in a little bit. You know, what are our churches doing? in terms of helping people with, let's say, job skill development, you know, for the chronically unemployed. Uh, because Paul, Paul gives some pretty strong words for people who are sort of shiftless, right? I mean, in 2 Thessalonians, they said, look, if you're able-bodied and you are able to do work, uh, the church ought not support you, right? If, if they refuse to work, then neither shall they eat, Okay, so Paul has a pretty strict definition about who this ought to be going to, but I agree with you, Monique, where we do see a lack of job skills as, uh, you know, there, there are two things that Paul says from an economic perspective, we are not to have in the church of Jesus Christ. The first is our orphans and legitimate widows are not to be destitute. Okay, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that those who are able-bodied are not to be shiftless and lazy. Uh, there to work. Uh, so let's identify, you know, maybe it is a mental health issue. Maybe it is a substance abuse issue that that um, sort of ensnares people in that chronic unemployment category. Uh, so if we can zero our efforts in there, uh, rather than spending all of our time pounding the table for a universal minimum wage and an across the board sort of uh, policy and call that justice, when in fact it is... Um, an unequal weight and measure that a doesn't work and from a pragmatic standpoint and b the scripture teaches us is in fact an abomination so that's really good and we've kind of touched on it a little bit but this whole universal basic income which is different than the minimum wage law universal basic income is the idea of like everybody gets a certain amount whether you work or not and I actually think that the government is experimenting with that right now through all of these stimulus checks and sort of conditioning people. But I'm everywhere we go on this trip, like we see now hiring signs everywhere and even in rural areas. And it's almost like I'm wondering if this quasi universal basic income that's happening right now with unemployment for even if people aren't working um, in, a, in a more generous fashion is actually creating an environment where people don't want to work. Why work? 
I can earn the same amount or more if I just collect this government check. Um, I find that deeply problematic from a Christian perspective because yeah. work is part of the created order. Work comes before the fall. Uh, it is intrinsic to what uh, it means to be a human person. And so if we're putting forth policies under the banner of justice, such as a universal basic income, I actually look at that as an abomination um, before God. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. You know, I, I 100% agree. And, and your comments here are part of the reason that I love the work that, that you both are doing. Um, th this is an image of God issue. When we, when we strip the ability uh, from someone to work, then we strip away not completely, but we, we strip away that part of the image of God that, that is in us, that deals with creativity, uh, that deals with wisdom, that deals with working into the world to bring blessing and flourishing to ourselves and to others. And that is stripped away. But uh, you know, the logic is simple. Uh, you know, imagine I imagine this would be very generous of me, but imagine I were giving my kids a hundred dollars of allowance every week for sitting on the couch and doing nothing. Just, oh, I care about you. You're my kid, hundred bucks, a uh, hundred bucks a week. Well, then there's a, a babysitting job that comes along for $120 a week. And let's say they got to work 15 hours. So they're making eight bucks an hour. But I tell them, look, if you take this job, you're going to be making 20% more, but there's no more allowance. Well, a 10-year-old can do the math and realize that that is, a, for, the, for the child, that's an irrational proposition. They would go to work for 15 hours during the week to gain 20 bucks, right? Because I was giving them 100 for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not even to mention the taxes <laughs> after uh, receiving that wage, right? So uh, it's an irrational proposition. And in fact, my uh, my PhD supervisor, I got to give him a shout out again, Dr. Uh, Guido Holzman describes this sort of problem as a rationality trap. When you trap a person into foolish, um, ungodly behavior, but it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. Um, and so these rationality traps are, uh, you know, Job uh, in claiming and in talking to God said, you know, I've spent my life smashing the fangs of oppressors. Well, the, the idea of fangs is that you've trapped prey and Job made it his job to, to break apart. So, so when I hear people talk about systemic injustice, well, there's one for you. There's one for you, the systems which government puts in place that keep people uh, ensnared or trapped in a place where they do not fully reflect the image of God, where they do not fully exercise the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 to be fruitful and to multiply. But again, these rationality traps that are set up by government mean that that's the only thing that makes sense is to stay on the sidelines. Yeah, I think to think about the idea of a universal basic income as being an example of a systemic injustice, that's a very provocative idea. And as a parent, I have to tell you, I've never been a fan of the whole allowance 
situation because I feel like it conditions kids from the beginning, you know, to just expect money for, for breathing. And uh, when our kids were young, we had them collecting bottles and cans and even recruiting their grandparents to save bottles and cans. And they had to go recycle them at the center because I wanted them to have a connection in their brain between work and money because I saw that as, as being a biblical idea, then those two ideas go together. And so even from a parenting perspective, um, all along, I was trying to put those two ideas together in their brain. If you want money, you must work. We're not going to just give you money for breathing. So, uh, you know, it's just a, um, it's just a provocative thing to, to think about as a justice Mm -hmm. issue. Thank you, Jeffrey, for coming on and and talking to us. This has been so helpful. I have so many more questions, but Monique's pointing at the clock for me. So we got to (laughs) run. We have a flight early. Yeah, so so many good questions. Maybe if you can leave us with any recommendation. One of the questions in the chat was, where could someone go to learn more about the history of, of minimum wage laws and impacts and, and Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. How could you resource us for more information on these issues? Sure. I'm going to give you my best one-stop shop. That is Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. And I'm currently at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and their wonderful library here. Uh, but in terms of uh, resourcing things there, the first place to stop on these issues, if you're not really, um, don't have much of an economics background, is a book by Henry Hazlitt. It's called Economics in One Lesson. And uh, fantastic. Oh, I have that book. Yes. Do you? Ah, yes. There you go. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So, so that's great. So that's a great starting point. And, um, you know, on, on these issues of, of minimum wage, um, uh, there's a number of different articles you would find there. I want to make sure I get the titles right here real quick. Um, yeah, that, that'll be a good spot for folks to go. Very good. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. We appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a privilege and, and blessings to you both in your travels and your continued, uh, continued work with the Lord. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very yeah. good. Alrighty. That was good. That was. I, I had like 45 more questions. I know you did. We, we, we not here for all that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you can miss me with it today. <laughs> well, People, few, it is not that serious. Uh, I want to go to a few more comments before we hang up. But um, first, I want to talk about our friends at Impact 360. Yes. Go We're ahead. Video. Yes. Go ahead. Give the intro. Wow. <laughs> Y'all, I'm, I'm telling you, my brain is in vacation mode. Um, our friends at Impact 360 reach out and touch the lives of young people. Their ministry is so impactful. They have three programs, um, a week program, I want to say a two-week program, and then their nine-month um, gap, gap year program. It is a worldview program that really helps ground young people in their Christian worldview. And so if you have a young person who is maybe struggling in understanding their Christian worldview or who you want to really just dig deep deeper into their worldview, consider sending them to Impact 360. We are going to be speakers there in July. Elisa Childers speaks there a couple times a year. 
Other friends of our ministry also speak there. It is an awesome program to help get kids dug in deep into their worldview. So go ahead and watch this video. Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change. I aspire to be someone who continues to build bridges with other cultures and who cultivates a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving. Now, after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world. And had I not had this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen, I don't think I would have had that same clarity. In this world, it's kind of like in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest? And who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be God. But he's not yelling. He's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people, like, hey, like, be still. Listen to this guy is calling you. He's calling you home. All right. Big thank you to our friends at Impact 360 for their sponsorship and support of All The Things Show. Yes. A few more comments here as we finish up the show tonight. Uh, Lee Chat, or Le Chat if it's French, says, theoretically, if an employer is not paying well, people don't have to work for them, then they start paying better to staff their business. This is a tenet of free market capitalism. Am I wrong? And I would say, I believe that that's correct. I mean, that's the whole idea we were talking about earlier of, of free will associations, free will contracts. And, you know, it's part of even our founding documents as our country as free will associations. And so that is an important part of it. Um, at will employment protects both the employer and the employee. Um, in socialist countries, you know, the government can tell you where to work and you can't quit. <laughs> and so having at-will employment actually protects everybody yeah. and um, is consistent with the idea of free will associations with uh, between the worker and uh, the owner. Uh, Candy says, allowance is a very Amer North American thing. Candy's from Jamaica. She says, my Jamaican parents wasn't having any of that when we came to Canada. <laughs> yeah, in South Africa, they weren't having it either. Parents was like, you want what? You better go out there and work. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a North American thing. All right. Uh, GRS has no allowance here either. They live here. They help for free. I actually made my oldest pay rent after he quit college. Of course. Yes. Yes, mm -mm, mm -mm. You, you, I feel like, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. The things that, um, that, that went on in my household, my mother would be like, you want gifts, gas, you got gas, you have electricity, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, now you want us to pay you for being here? The devil is a lie. <laughs> um, Kristen says, we've definitely found that to be true in hiring Krista. We have family in another small business that had someone quit because they could make more in un receiving unemployment. And well, that's what you said. You yeah. had you had people at your job who were like, I'm not coming back. I don't need to work because I get more. On unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, the, the struggle is real. And I just think this is damaging to people's soul. I'm, I am not a fan of universal basic income. 
strictly for biblical reasons, I, I think it damages people to create an incentive uh, not to work. Now, again, I'm talking about able-bodied people. If we're talking about the disabled, the, um, you know, the truly, uh, the indigent people who cannot work or in, in certain categories of like widows or people who are, um, you know, the vulnerable in that way, that's a different conversation mm-hmm. where they shouldn't be allowed to be um, without basic needs and resources. The church needs to step in. Charity historically has, has been that stopgap. But um, if people are able-bodied, they need to be working. Otherwise, it, it really damages people, I think, in their soul. But yeah. to be created in the image of God is, is to work. But so. I, love, um, I love what Jeffrey said about, you know, increasing employment, not just employment opportunities, but increasing skill sets, um, like job skills and things like that, and how the church can step into that conversation. Um, When I ran a um, shelter and day center, one of the things we had was like a computer center and job skills and things like that. I actually, um, at another job, created an internship for teens where before they actually went to their, their internship placement, I taught them these are some of the the entry level things you're going to need to know to work in an office. And so, you know, it, it, those are like the foundational skills that people need, but that they lack. Yeah. And so how can the church step into that as a way to increase income for individuals? So if we're talking about a justice issue, we want to think carefully about it, not just go with the stream of the culture, mm-hmm. really looking in scripture of, you know, what does it, have to say about about these matters and so good good conversation tonight yes big thanks to jeffrey yeah yes we appreciate it all right that's all we have for you this week we hope you found this this program helpful next week we've got another exciting show yes and we'll be back home yeah all right actually i might stay anyway you'll find (laughs) out next week where i'm at all All right. right have a good night god bless Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.